And would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 from verse 23, and we read, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? I love the sea. Uh, throughout the months, uh, I've got various uh, paintings of uh, seascapes dotted all over the place. And uh, when I was on holiday uh, a few months ago, uh, I spent most of it perched on the Caithness coastline taking pictures of uh, the waves uh, smashing against that northeast uh, coastline. Uh, on my days off, there's nothing I love more than uh, heading over to the west side and uh, walking along uh, those coastal paths. Uh, that David probably spent most of his life uh, growing up in. I, I love, I love the sea, and I'm always amazed that the Lord would allow me to pastor two congregations that were so close to the sea, Thurso and then uh, Stornoway. I don't know how I would have coped if I was in one of these uh, landlocked areas. But the sea, as we all know, can be dangerous. It can be deadly. We only need to go to the Ayalair Memorial to be reminded of this. Today we're going to be continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10 and we're focusing on this deadly storm at sea that Jesus and his disciples found themselves in. And we're going to consider this under two headings, the tempest and then the tranquility, the tempest and then the tranquility. First you have the tempest, look at verses 23 to 25. Here Matthew focuses on a storm at sea. We can begin by noting the setting in verse 23. In verse 18, Matthew drew our attention to the directions that Jesus gave. He had seen a great crowd gathering around him, and he had given them orders to go over to the other side of the lake. It was a test to see who had really committed themselves to him. Those with a passing general interest would remain where they were, but those with a genuine personal interest would follow him across the lake. And now in verse 23, Matthew draws our attention to the departure. Jesus gets into a boat and he prepares to cross the Sea of Galilee. It would be a two-hour crossing, and the disciples follow him. They will not allow this sea, this lake, to create a gap, a distance between them and Jesus. We move from the setting to the storm in verse 24. The Sea of Galilee is famous, we might say infamous, for its storms. It was 600 feet below sea level. It was, you'd get winds from the Mediterranean that would come smashing through the ravines that were on either side of the lake. And these winds that would be coming through the ravines would create turmoil on the waves. And now one of these storms occurs as Jesus and his disciples are crossing. And Matthew highlights that the storm was sudden. It was unexpected. It was surprising. That's seen in Matthew's use of the word, behold. As Jesus had stood addressing the disciples on the shore, there was nothing to indicate that this would be anything other than a peaceful crossing, a pleasant crossing. 
And all of a sudden, without any warning, there's a storm. And Matthew highlights that the storm was severe. The word Matthew uses for storm is the Greek word seismos, from which we get the word seismic. It was a storm that was almost an earthquake. Furthermore, Matthew describes it as being a great storm, literally a mega storm. And it's so severe, we're told, that the boat was being swamped, it was being covered, it was being hidden by the waves. From a human perspective, Jesus and his disciples are in an extremely dangerous situation. We move from the storm to the sleeper in verses 24 and 25. Matthew tells us that Jesus was asleep. Look at verse 24. At one level, that illustrates his physical tiredness. I was speaking with Callum Ian McLeod from Fed and Tosh last week, and we were chatting about how tiring preaching can be. It leaves you worn out. It leaves you wrung out. You wouldn't believe how tired I am when I get home on a Sunday evening. I know it sounds ridiculous, and you might think, what a, what a weakling, but, but it is exhausting. There's just something in it. I, I can't put my finger on it. And Jesus has spent the whole day preaching and teaching the crowds, and it's taken its toll on him. It's left him exhausted. He lies down in the boat, he falls asleep, and it's such a deep sleep that not even this severe storm, this sudden storm, can waken him up. But at another level, that illustrates his dependence on God. In Psalm 4, we read, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In Proverbs 3, we read, If you lie down, you will not be afraid when you lie down. Your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. These scriptures highlight that those who are trusting in the Lord will sleep, no matter what their situation might be. And here's Jesus calmly sleeping as he rests his head on the sovereign watch care of his Father in heaven. Matthew goes on to tell us that Jesus was awoken by the disciples. Look at verse 25. The disciples are in this life-threatening storm at sea, and they go to Jesus and they find that he's sleeping. And they proceed to wake him up. And they wake him with the words, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The language that Matthew uses indicates that they have completely lost their heads. They're out of their minds with fear. They can hardly speak. They literally say, Save, Lord, we perish. Three words in the Greek. These men are experienced fishermen who had grown up by the Sea of Galilee. They, they knew what it was to lose life at sea. Maybe some of them had lost friends. Others had lost family members at sea. And now they're utterly convinced that they are going to die in this sudden storm, this severe storm. Their names added to the list of those who had perished before. And so they're crying out, Lord, save. We perish. Now, friends, as we focus on these verses, I want us to focus on the presentation of Jesus' humanity. That is what Matthew is emphasizing to his readers. He wants to convey the truth that the one who had described himself as being the Son of Man, back in verse 20, is indeed fully man. And he does this by highlighting the fact that Jesus fell asleep. His body was a real human body. A body that needed rest, a body that needed refreshment, a body that needed recuperation. And you know, friends, that is so important for us to remember. The Jesus whom we meet in the Gospels is a Jesus who is fully man. A real man with a real body. In his book, Knowing Christ, Mark Jones writes, 
To deny Christ's complete and true humanity is to deny the Christian faith. The humanity of Christ stands at the heart of the Christian faith. The second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature in order to save his people as the God-man Jesus. Unless he took on real human flesh and real human bone, he could never suffer for his people. Unless he took on real human flesh and real human bone, he could never bleed and die for his people. And he assumed a human nature not only to suffer and save his people, but also so that he might sympathize with his people. He knows what it is to experience hunger and tiredness. He knows what it is to experience ordinary human emotions. He knows what it is to experience ordinary human affections. The Jesus whom we meet in the Gospels is fully God. But friends, let's never lose sight of the fact that he is also fully man. He has the same body that we have. But as we consider these verses, I also want us to focus on the perplexing places that this Jesus will take his people into. And that's what Matthew demonstrates to his readers. Jesus had spoken to the disciples about following him. He had then gotten into the boat and they had followed after him. And as they crossed the lake, they find themselves in this sudden storm, this severe storm. Something that they were completely unprepared for. And again, friends, that is so important for us to remember. One of my favourite bands is an American group called The National. Um, Their music is not the most uplifting. Maybe that's why I like them so much. There are people in this congregation who love upbeat music. That's not me. I love The National with their very dreary, depressing songs. And one of their albums is called Trouble Will Find Me. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then trouble is going to find you. The Lord doesn't promise his followers an easy life. Instead, he will take them into places that are perplexing. Seasons where they'll feel like they can't make it. Situations where they're driven into what's same corner. Storms that will threaten to almost completely overwhelm them. And maybe that's true of some who are in this building today. Maybe, maybe you are in a storm. Or maybe you have just come out of a storm which has almost overwhelmed you, but is almost overwhelming you. The Lord takes his people into perplexing places. But we move from the turmoil, the tempest, to the tranquility. Look at verses 26 and 27. Matthew now focuses on the stilling of the storm. In verse 26, we hear the rebuke. Jesus begins by rebuking the disciples. Look at verse 26. They're shaking him and they're shouting, Lord, save, we perish. They're hysterical with panic, hysterical with fear. And the first thing that Jesus does is he asks them a question. Why are you afraid? Jesus looks these grown men in the eye and he says to them, why are you behaving like such cowards? Why are you afraid? But Jesus goes further as he then asserts that these men have little faith. Now please note, Jesus doesn't say that they have no faith. He's not accusing them of being unbelievers, but he is saying to them, you have got very little faith, very small faith. And having rebuked the disciples, Jesus then rebukes the storm. Look again at verse 26. Matthew writes that he rose. This is a very small boat. 
it's about eight feet long by two feet wide. Um, sorry, sorry um, let me get that straight. Yes, it's eight metres long by two metres wide. That would be a very small boat. So eight metres long by two metres wide. And that's the kind of boat that they're in. And Jesus stands up in this boat. Now, you don't stand up in that kind of boat in a storm. My brother and sister can't even stand up in the ferry on the calmest of days. Never mind one of these little boats. And here's Jesus standing up, rising up in the midst of the storm as this little boat has been almost submerged beneath the waves. And as he rises, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Matthew likens the storm here to an uncontrollable creature. It's almost untamable. And Jesus rebukes it. Jesus shouts at it. Jesus speaks to it. It's interesting to reflect on the fact that Matthew focuses not so much on what was said, but on who was speaking. Matthew doesn't say, and this is what Jesus said. Matthew simply says, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. And following the rebuke there is, we read, a great calm. Look at verse 24. There was a great storm. Now look at verse 26. The great storm is replaced by a great calm. The sea becomes like glass. There's not even a ripple on the surface of the waters. There's not a breath of wind. It's so still that you could hear a pin drop. We move, though, from the rebuke to the reflection. Look at verse 27. Matthew tells us that the disciples marveled. Beginning of verse 27. They've seen a man rebuke the wind, rebuke a great storm, so that it now becomes a great calm. They've seen this tempest give way to tranquility in just the blink of an eye. And it leaves them amazed. It leaves them astonished. It leaves them awestruck. They are marveling. But they do more than marvel. Matthew also says that they began to murmur among themselves. Look again at verse 27. They say, what sort of man is this? That even winds and seas obey him. It's important to remember that these men were well versed in scripture. These men had grown up under a steady diet of psalm singing. If they could recite the words of Psalm 18, then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. They could recite the words of Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. They could recite the words of Psalm 65. By awesome deeds you answered us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the fire of the seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. They could recite the words of Psalm 89. Now listen to these words. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? You rule the raging of the sea, and when its waves rise, you still them. These men knew that only the Lord, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the Almighty One, only the Lord could still a storm. And now they've seen Jesus controlling and stilling a storm with just a word. And they murmur, Who is this that even the wind and seas obey him? 
It's actually a rhetorical question that Matthew is using as he writes. Because as the disciples are asking who is this that even the wind and seas obey and they don't give an answer, Matthew is pressing the reader to think, well, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and seas obey him? Well, friends, as we consider these verses, I want us to focus on the power that Jesus displays. And that's what Matthew is demonstrating to his readers. As far as Matthew is concerned, yes, Jesus is fully man, but he's not an ordinary man. Neither is he a godly prophet, nor is he a wise man who knows about God and the ways of God. As far as Matthew is concerned, Jesus is the one whom the wind and the seas obey. As far as Matthew is concerned, Jesus is the one who can do what only God can do. He is the one who is sovereign over the storm. And friends, that is so important for us to remember. The gospel makes it clear that Jesus is the author and sustainer of the creation, the cosmos. In John chapter 1, we're told that all things were made through him and nothing was made without him. In Colossians 1, we're told that he made all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and in him all things hold together. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one whom the wind and the seas must obey. They have no no other option. He is the author and sustainer of creation. And friends, if the wind and the seas obey him, if they follow his direction, if they follow his word, then so must you and I. This passage is compelling us, it is commanding us, it is calling us to bow the knee to the Lord of the storm. But as we consider these verses, they don't simply focus on the power that Jesus displays. They also focus on the probing question that Jesus asks. That's what Matthew draws his readers' attention to. He presents his readers with the panic-stricken disciples. And he presents Jesus asking this probing question. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. You see, these men appeared to have great faith when they got into the boat and prepared to cross to the other side of the lake. Some, some stayed on the shore, but these men had got into the boat and they were prepared to follow Jesus across the lake. They seemed to have great faith, but the true condition of their faith was exposed by the storm. When they found themselves in a situation that was beyond their control. And Jesus probes them about this as he asks them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And you know, friends, that is so important for us to remember. The true condition and quality of our faith is seen in our response to unexpected, unwanted, uncontrollable circumstances and situations. The severe storms, the perplexing places that the Lord brings us into will expose either the greatness or the smallness of our faith. I'll say that again. The severe storms, the perplexing places that the Lord brings us into will expose the greatness or the smallness of our faith. And maybe today, friend, you can see the ways in which a particular storm has exposed the frailty and the fragility of your faith. Maybe you thought you had great faith. And then the pandemic and its isolation 
and its restrictions showed that your faith wasn't as strong as you once thought. Or maybe you thought that you had great faith and then the routine trip to the doctor and the unexpected diagnosis showed that your faith wasn't as strong as you once thought. Or maybe you thought that you had great faith and then the difficulties in your marriage or the difficulties with your children showed that your faith wasn't as strong as you once thought. Or maybe you thought that you had great faith and then something or someone very precious to you was taken from you and it showed that your faith wasn't as strong as you once thought. You know, it can be easy to believe that we have great faith on the calm days as we prepare to get into the boat. But it's the storms that test and prove the true quality, the true condition of our faith. Can I be honest with you? I, I used to think I had great faith. Now, I never said it. I'm, I'm, I'm Scottish, I'm a Highlander, and I'm Presbyterian, and we don't say we have great faith. But I thought I had great faith. I thought I had great faith when I was in the very sheltered environment of the Divinity Department in St Andrews. And I thought I had even greater faith when I was in the warm lecture rooms of the Free Church College, now Edinburgh Theological Seminary. I, I thought I had great faith. I thought I had strong faith. But it was the storms that I've gone through since leaving those places that have showed the true condition of my faith. And you know what, friends, they've actually showed the smallness of my faith at times. The smallness of my faith. And the question is, where do you go when every weakness and limitation of your faith has been exposed? Where do you go when you're aware that your faith is far smaller than you actually thought? Well, this passage is saying you go to Jesus. You look to Jesus. You turn your attention to the Lord of the storm because nothing and no one else will suffice. Listen to these words from Don Carson. Jesus is always bigger than our fears. Moreover, our faith will be most stable if we center it on who Jesus is. Faith urgently needs to know not so much what Jesus will do or what he promises he may have made that are applicable to this or that situation, but who Jesus is. The Christian must learn that knowing the authentic Jesus is what strengthens faith the most. We discover with increasing delight that Jesus is always far more wonderful than we had anticipated. Friends, that is where you go. That is where we must look to when we're aware that our faith is small, when we're aware that our faith is struggling, when we're aware that our faith is being submerged and swamped by the storms that are coming into our lives. We don't look at ourselves. And we don't look at those round about us. We look to the Lord of the storm. We look to Jesus. And I hope, friend, that if you are in a storm today, that this word might encourage you to look to him all the more.